Um, it's a small book, easy to miss. It comes out of what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, which is Jesus' Bible that he grew up with. Um, Jesus understood himself to be the Messiah through the Old Testament. When he talked about the heart of God and the love of God and the things he knows of God, if you ever find yourself compelled by the way Jesus talks about God, his understanding of God in his humanity was informed by what we call the Old Testament. This is his favorite set of books. Um, and one of the many reasons I commend the Old Testament to you uh, is because Jesus loved him so much, loved it so much. So tonight we get to read um, a little bit or talk a little bit about um, one of the stories contained in the Old Testament called Jonah. And we, we, begin, um, we begin our journey through, I, I think, what is one of the greatest stories in the history of the world in the book of Jonah. Uh, it's a page and a half long. So if you're like, I wonder where we're going, there you go, page and a half. Um, good luck finding it, but it won't take you long once you get there. Um, I, oh geez, I should, I want to out myself right now. When I was an undergrad, I studied Hebrew, uh, and that was super strange because I wasn't ever planning on doing anything with Christianity or religion. I didn't even know how I identified with my faith, but I was able somehow through a public university to take biblical Hebrew. It was a strange set of circumstances at the University of Washington. Go dogs! Uh, hopefully we make the college football playoffs this year, and um, I was terrible at Hebrew. Uh, I barely passed every class. One of the books that we studied was Jonah, and I just memorized it in English and then tried cruddy translations, like making it up, and, and my professor totally knew every time. But this book was kind of like the bane of my existence in undergrad, and it's become one of my favorite books um, over the course of the last 25, 30 years. So I'm really excited to get to preach through it with you. This is a story of, of intrigue. It's a story of irony of adventure on the high seas, of enemy kingdoms and calls to repentance, stories of betrayal and hope. It's a story in which animals and ships both obey God. It's a strange story for a page and a half. There's a lot of stuff going on. Somewhere between 75 and 90% of the story has nothing to do with a fish. But often, if you know anything about Jonah, that's the only thing you know. So what is the story about? What is Jonah about? If it's true, and you may not agree with me, you might think it's ridiculous if you know anything about Jonah to say it's not really about a fish uh, or about Jonah being in a fish. Um, what is it about and why should we care? Why should we care about, like in the 21st century, about reading a 3,000-year-old story about a disobedient prophet? Why should we care about that? Everybody's got tests and relationships and families and jobs and decisions to make and identity crises and, and sleepless nights and anxiety and all these things. Why should we care about this? Friends, this story is not a set of how-to instructions. It's very difficult to make a three-point sermon out of a story. There isn't going to be a sentence in here which tells you directly which major to choose or who to date, where to move, what roommates to choose. Rather, like most stories, Jonah is going to invite you to see yourself in light of how this story tells the story of the world. Is the God of Jonah the same God before whom you live your life today? And if this is how God interacts with the Ninevites, we'll meet them soon, and the ancient mariners, and the fish, and the plant, and the boat, and the wind, and the high seas, if this is how God interacts with Jonah, how do we imagine that God interacts with us? How can this story help inform our imaginations and our minds 
for how God might be at play and at work with us. Let's pray. Father, um, oh, I give you thanks that we're together tonight, and I give you thanks that you're worthy of worship. Thank you for the story. Thank you for the men on that boat. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the Israelite people who took great pains for generations to recount this story and hand it on down through the ages. Thank you that you never leave us. Thank you that we cannot hide from you. And thank you for the way that these stories um, reframe our imagination. There's a whole generation of Ninevites who we will meet in the resurrection. We give you thanks for them. There are sailors who we will meet in the resurrection. We give you thanks for them. And today we learn from them and from you. Send your spirit now that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. You want to put up that first slide, Casey? That'd be great. Our story, um, our story begins uh, like all stories begin, with a word from the Lord. That's how all stories begin. God calls out to Jonah and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so Jonah gets up. He rises. But instead of going to Nineveh, he splits and he goes the opposite direction. So actually, real quick, just go to the map if you don't mind. Let's see that next. I want you guys to, to see this real quick. We don't exactly know what's going on in Nineveh. We know from other sources that the, um, the Assyrians, so Nineveh would soon be the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonians followed them. You may be more familiar with their name. But the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh is a city, a big region where a bunch of Assyrians lived. We know from other sources out of archaeology that these people living in Nineveh were known for their wickedness in the ancient world. They were like singled out as a particularly um, hard group of people. One king was known that every time he conquered people, he would rip off their lips and their hands and then let them live. The next king who followed him um, flayed people alive and liked to make piles of their skulls. Okay, these, are, these aren't biblical accounts. These are just archaeological things that we know about the Assyrians. I don't know what was going on. We don't know what was going on at this particular time. But something about the wickedness of Nineveh was, um, was God wanted to confront. And so he calls Jonah to arise and go and tell them God is done with your evil. So Jonah rises, and instead of going northeast, he goes southwest. Okay, take a look at this map. So Gath Heifer right here in the middle, um, this is where Jonah is living at the time. And Nineveh is the northeast over here. Joppa, which we'll encounter in a second, is here. Tarshish is off the map. It's way, way over here. We'll just keep that up for a second. Okay, where, where, is, where is Tarshish? We don't know. Most people think it was probably at the southern tip of Spain. Wherever it is, it's at the edge of the known world at the time. If Jonah was like, how, what is the farthest I can get away from Nineveh? There is an answer, and it's Tarshish. This is where he's going. In, in verse 3, the word Tarshish shows up three times in one verse. 
just to emphasize that Jonah is most definitely not going to Nineveh. Why is he not going to Nineveh? Well, we're not told yet. Okay, we'll find out in chapter 4. If you want to skip ahead, it's a ton of reading. Um, But beginning of chapter 4, you'll find out. Okay, but for now, we're only told that Jonah does. God says, arise and go to Nineveh and call out against them about their sin. And he jets in the opposite direction. So he gets up and he goes down to Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv, if you're looking, if that's helpful for you, okay? And he finds a ship. He pays whatever fare is required. He gets on that boat to sail away. Some scholars think Jonah must have sold all of his property and paid the cost for the entire ship. Jonah was not going on vacation. He didn't need a little bit of a break to escape from God's commands or something. He was moving to the other side of the world so that God could not use him for what God wanted to do. He is trying to go away, the text says, from the presence of the Lord. That's what he's trying to do. Would you move to the next couple of verses, uh, verses 4 through 6? And so as Jonah hops on this ship around Tel Aviv, um, uh, Joppa at the time, and they start sailing off of the Mediterranean, okay, towards um, Tarshish. And, and as the ship breaks out into the open seas, the Scriptures tell us that the Lord hurls this great wind upon the sea so that the ship threatens to break up. Actually, the Hebrew word here says that the ship considers breaking apart. It's a really weird word that is only usually applied to humans who consider things, right? So even, it's as if the ship is trying to listen and obey God. The wind obeys God. The ship is even obeying God. Jonah's fleeing. And the sailors on the ship freak out. They start crying out to their own gods. They're probably Phoenician people who are polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. Each one of them believes in a different God because the text says that each of them cry out to their different cultural gods. And something strange must have been happening. I mean, these are mariners. They're professional sailors. They're used to storms at seas. Whether it's the intensity or the suddenness of the storm or or maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something strange in the quality of the storm. We don't know, but, but we know that the Lord hurled it at the boat and the men who were used to seeing storms start to panic. And in response to God hurling that great wind at them, they start hurling their goods overboard to do all they can to keep this ship afloat. And as all of this was happening in the open sea, we read that Jonah is somehow down in the belly of the boat fast asleep. Strange thing upon strange thing pile up in this story. So the captain of this boat goes down to wake up Jonah. Why are you sleeping? He says, in, in, in the English translation we're reading, it's, it's sleeper is somehow like a cuss word or something, you know, sleeper, you know, or something, I don't know. But why are you sleeping? He says, and then he says this, get this. He says, arise. We've heard that before. Arise and call out to God. Arise and call out. These are the same two commands God gave Jonah in verse 1. There, as far as Jonah could get away from God, first down and away from Nineveh, and then over to Tarshish, and then down and away from the storm, and still in the mouth of a Gentile sailor, he hears the same words he heard from God. That wouldn't have been lost on Jonah, that he meets the the face of this sailor in the midst of a ship about to break apart in a storm, and that sailor sounds an awful lot like God in that moment. 
Do you ever feel like you just can't get away from God? So they decide, um, Jonah and the, the captain, to go back to the top of the ship, and the sailors all decide to cast lots to decide what's happening. And if you've, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before. It's a, um, something that throws a lot of us for loops. Like, what does that mean? Uh, the disciples, most of us, if we know it at all, probably know it from the New Testament because a lot of us don't read the Old Testament. Um, that wasn't like a dig. I just think we don't know it from the Old Testament, but it's all over the place there. But in the New Testament, when Judas betrays Jesus and then uh, church history holds that he committed suicide after, after the fact, we don't know that from the text exactly, but something like this happens. And, um, uh, and what a heartbreaking heartbreaking tragedy at the end of all this. Um, but there's 11 disciples left, and the disciples see fit um, to appoint somebody else to be uh, a replacement, to be a 12th disciple, and they cast lots. That might be a place where we've seen it before is in the book of Acts as they're casting lots for another disciple. Um, okay, so the casting lots was like an ancient method of discerning the will of the gods. That's kind of what casting lots is. It's basically a game of chance, like drawing straws. You guys know what drawing straws is? Yeah, that's the thing. Great, I got one, yeah, I'll take that. Okay, so this is happening all over the ancient Near East. We have records of things like, of casting lots in lots of places. It, it would have been something like this. You take like two uh, rocks and, and each of them would have white paint like on one side of the rock and then you would pose a question and you'd throw rocks in the, in, and in this case it might be, the question might be something like, is it Jonah's fault that the storm is happening? And you throw the rocks. And then if the rocks landed with both sides showing white up or whatever paint color you used, then the answer would be yes. And if both sides did not show a paint color, then the answer would be no. And if they showed both colors or, or one color and one not colored, then, then they would go, well, that's indecisive. Let's cast them again. And so they, they would imagine the sailors are sitting on this boat rocking in the waves and the sea, and they are frantically casting these lots at each sailor going, whose fault is it? This is happening. This is weird. We haven't seen it before. Whatever else. And so when it came time to ask about Jonah, both rocks turned up white. The lot fell on Jonah. They thought this meant, God's really mad at you, Jonah. What's going on? So they asked him, what was happening? What did you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? This makes a lot of sense to me that they have all these questions. My, I have a brother who spent years, like almost a decade, fishing in Alaska in very dangerous conditions. Um, he has one story where he went to bed and woke up the next morning and one of the people was gone from the boat in the middle of the open sea. Uh, and I asked him, I was like, well, what happened? He's like, brother, you don't ask. You just don't ask. We don't know if he took his life. We don't know if two people got in a fight. But if two people got in a fight and somebody is willing to throw somebody else overboard, you don't want to be on their bad side in the middle of the Alaskan Sea. And so you literally just don't ask. And, and that story's in my head because when I read this, I'm like, that makes a ton of sense to me if a bunch of people are out in the middle of the ocean together, that they, that they actually are probably not like really vulnerable and late at night sharing each other's testimonies, you know? Like just based on what my knowledge of what it's like to, what I've heard it's like to be on a ship with people who are working really hard, um, long days, sleepless nights, um, not great food, everybody's irritable, you know, and, and they're just there for the money and we're just getting done, you know, kind of thing, right? So they have all these questions for Jonah. What in the world happened? And then Jonah speaks for the very first, all of this has happened and we've never heard a word from Jonah. He was first called to rise and he did get up, but then he went the wrong way. And he was commanded to call out and he never did. And now in verse 9, we finally hear from Jonah 
and his words serve to cement his culpability. In case you think he didn't understand what's going on or he doesn't really know who was talking to him or something like that, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The last slide would be great. And when the sailors heard Jonah tell them this, that he serves the God who made the winds and the sea, We know God's mad at you because we just cast lots for that, but you're telling me the one who's mad at you made the wind and the sea? Which were right then raging against their ship, threatening their very lives? They were very afraid and they wanted to know what Jonah did to make it happen. And and also, what should they do to stop the storm? And Jonah says, just pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then it'll quiet down and I know it's because of me that all this is happening. And this story is so carefully told that I can't help but notice that Jonah, who so far has only risen to run, is now asking sailors to pick him up. He's not throwing himself over. God hurls things, sailors hurls things, Jonah won't hurl anything. And we should be very careful because even if you, if you didn't grow up in the church or you didn't grow up as a Christian or you don't know much about the categories of the prophets and the and sailors and Ninevites, let's say you know nothing about those categories, my assumption is that everybody in this room, if I said to you, and unless you are an Israelite, if you are an Israelite, my, if you're a Jewish person, you probably know better what these stories are like and how people have used these against you. You might know some of that. But for most of us who don't spend any time in the Israelite texts, Jesus' favorite library and that kind of thing, Old Testament, okay? If I told you we're going to read a story about a prophet and and a people who are the enemies of God's people, who would you assume is going to be the good guy and who would you assume are going to be the bad guys in the story? All of this is very surprising if you don't know, the if, if you are familiar with categories at all. Because here Jonah is the only person who doesn't seem to be doing the things God is asking anybody to do. And we should be careful not to mistake, this is, these are particular words, not to mistake Jonah's conviction for, for Jonah having compassion. We should be careful not to read in this moment, Jonah must be so compassionate, okay? That he's saying, dude, throw me over the boat. Okay, there's nothing in this story, in all four chapters, Nothing that leads us to believe that Jonah has a ton of compassion on the sailors or anybody else, for that matter. Remember, when their lives were at stake, what was he doing? He was sleeping fast asleep, Jonah. Everybody's about to die, and Jonah's like, I'm taking a nap. I'm not helping you guys work. I'm not helping you throw boxes overboard. I'm not praying out to my God for you. You can pray like praying is all that matters. You can work like working is all that matters. But Jonah, you're not doing either of them. You're sleeping like nothing matters. He might have felt conviction. He obviously knew what was going on. We'll see it demonstrated in just a second. He was right. He was convicted, but that doesn't mean he has compassion. And sometimes we can mistake those things. He had some conviction about how this is, why this is going on and what must be done. And so he says, throw me over. And still, like to, just to, to, to demonstrate the sort of difference in and and surprising character moves. Still, even when Jonah tells the sailors, this is why, here's what you must do, they have compassion for Jonah. And so they dig in. They don't immediately throw him over. They start rowing harder and harder. The text says they dig in. 
because they don't want to sacrifice him. But the harder they rode, the more the seas raged to a point that they couldn't move at all. And so they, doing what Jonah had not up to this point, they cried out to God. They had already cried out to their own gods, but now these Phoenician polytheists are crying out to the God of heaven, the very one Jonah is running from. They say, God, we don't want his innocent blood on our hands. You, I, th- I think we're doing what it will please you through the mouth of your prophet. Please do not hold this against us. And they pick him up and they hurl him into the sea. And like Jonah said would happen, the seas became calm. And so these men were, were afraid with great fear, the text says. And then these men, made, these men offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows to God. There's some really interesting speculation about what happens in this particular verse, verse 16, because they'd already thrown all their goods overboard, and and to our knowledge, no ships would have live animals on them in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea like this. And so these Hebrew commentaries, they're called Midrash, they speculate that sailors, they must have just gotten rid of their idols, and when they got back to town, went up to Jerusalem, offered sacrifices to the temple, and devoted the rest of their lives to telling others about the Lord of the heavens and the seas. Now listen, our biblical text doesn't say this, but when you are reading the text and you read that they offered sacrifices and made vows, and you know that in their world people made sacrifices at temples, and they didn't have any animals to sacrifice with them on the boat, most likely, well, what does this mean? And most Jewish commentators would have said it means that we should assume If they are offering sacrifices to God and making vows, they would have had to be instructed on what vows are there. So they're actually back in Jerusalem telling everybody about the God of the heavens and the earth. We don't know that with confidence, of course, from the text. But the end of chapter 1 leaves us with Jonah, the prophet, left for dead in the water. So a runaway prophet of God floating in the waves and Gentile sailors professing faith in God and doing what Jonah would not. This is chapter 1. That's a little unexpected, yeah? And there is no resolution to this first verse about the evil going on in the east. I guess the the east is over there in the picture. There's no resolution to that yet. Remember, in the very opening thing, what the problem that's happening, the, the conflict on the horizon is all of this evil happening in Nineveh. We haven't even, we're actually far away from Nineveh right now. We're not even there yet. What do you do with this story up to this point? What's the deal? How do we preach through something like this? What do we take away from it? There are a few things I think we know just from chapter one. And I want to come back to the very beginning when I said, when we're listening to stories, and so much of the Bible is full of stories of people, Stories of Jesus, stories of prophets, stories of priests, stories of people groups, stories of families, stories of runaways, stories of slaves, stories of on and on and on. What do we do with these stories? How do we let the story of who God is and who they are, I'm not making a claim that these stories aren't real. I believe they are real. Why has God seen fit to hand them down to us that we might benefit from them in some way? How does the story of Jonah impact the way we imagine who God is and who we are in this world? There are a few things I think we know. One, the world we inhabit, the very one inhabited by Jonah, is a place where people who bear the name of God don't always obey God. 
That's one thing we see from the book of Jonah. This is a world that sometimes people who bear the name of God do not do the things God calls them to do. We know that God shows no partiality from this story. In other words, He gives grace and He receives worship and He cares about all that He has made, not just those people who are explicitly called His people. And this theme is going to unfold even more as the story goes on, so I'll leave that for the coming weeks. We know from this story that no one can really hide from God. This is a massive motif throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Even in the middle of the ocean at the bottom of a boat fast asleep, God does not abandon Jonah. Not when Jonah's running from him or trying to hide from him. Neither does God abandon those sailors who had never heard of him before. I'm reminded of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence, O God? I'm reminded of this psalm, not only because it's one of my favorites, but because Jonah specifically flees from the presence of the Lord, we're told, and it's almost word for word what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Where shall I leave from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, where Jonah's about to be, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The Lord God who made the heavens and the earth from whom no secrets are hidden, who at this very moment is sustaining each and every one of us by the word of His power, what does it even mean to hide from Him? If those are true about God, what does it mean to hide from Him who sees all things? who is with us even in our darkest moments. What does it mean to run from God who's with us, who meets us where we're going? I'm taking off. I'm disobeying God. And what we find over and over and over again, the Scriptures bear witness to this, 2,000 years of church history bear witness to this. Wherever we go, we find God has met us there and beats us to that place, ready to receive us and welcome us like a host even in our darkness. Surely we can disobey Him. This is actually what it means to run from God in the Hebrew Scriptures, to disobey Him. You can do that. You can close your eyes. You can shut your ears. You could rent a boat and sail 2,000 miles away. But whether I am on my pillow alone in my room late at night or fast asleep in the belly of the boat, the truth is God is never far from me. Jonah ran, though God was never far from him. And he is not far from any one of us. Brothers and sisters, God is not far from you. Even if you are running from Him, even if you think you've closed all the doors and shut all the windows, He is with you and nearer to you now than ever before. It's an interesting thing to talk, to, um, it's an interesting thing to talk about in this room where, where everybody here is chosen to come on a Tuesday night to worship God and, and to hear uh, a reading from His Scriptures and to participate in, in, in the taking of His body and blood in the communion meal. Maybe you didn't come for these things. Maybe you came to meet a friend or, or, or some other reasons, but these are the kinds of things probably you knew would happen at a place like this. And so I don't know. I, I doubt anybody's here in trying as they walked into the room to run from God, but potentially 
Potentially, you feel like you are too far in some ways. Potentially, some of you are, have, have things God has been inviting you into and you have closed your eyes or your ears to Him. I don't know. But I, I want to remind you or tell you for the first time, you are never far from God. Or maybe it's better to say He is never far from you. This is the world we discover in the story of Jonah. It's the world we wake up to each day. It's the world we rest in as we sleep at night. It's a, it's a world where God is on the move to come against sin, to send His people out, to meet and welcome worship from anyone, to find us wherever we are hiding, to rescue us from our enemies, from one another, and even from ourselves. The very heart of God is on display in this story, and it will be even more in the coming weeks. So I, I want you to stick with us. One of my greatest challenges in preparing this sermon tonight was to not preach too much out of Jonah 4 yet. Because I'm, I, I have this worry that some of you won't be here in three weeks, and it's really significant that you can hear the reason why Jonah was running. It will surprise you, and it will surprise you not just because of what you read in the text, but because of what happens after the story of Jonah is over. It will surprise you because of what it reveals about the character and heart of God. It will surprise you because of the consequences that are at stake when you say yes to living like Jesus. Next week, we're going to leave those now God-fearing sailors. We'll see them again in the resurrection. And we're going to go overboard with Jonah. And we're going to follow him, not just to the depths of the boat, but to the depths of the sea. Even there, we'll find... God does not abandon him. God isn't done. God is just beginning. Right at the place where Jonah, the readers, the sailors, all think Jonah's about to end. God is just at the beginning like he is with each one of us. Let me pray for us. Father, in your mercy, would you send your spirit now to help us believe, help us to know that you are not far from any one of us, Give us the courage to rise where you've called us to rise, to call out what you've called us to call out against. Keep us awake, not falling asleep in the bottom of a boat while other people are afraid. Help us to throw overboard whatever is weighing us down. Thank you that you don't forget about the Ninevites. Thank you that you don't forget about the sailors. Thank you that you don't forget about Jonah. Thank you that you know fish and boats. Thank you that the wind does your bidding. And thank you that the one who has all this power, thank you that we know what you're like because of who we see you to be in Jesus. And so we have no reason to fear. Draw near to us now as we pray together, um, as we come to your table, as we respond to you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.